Welcome to the Binge or Bum podcast with Ellen Sherman and Gillian Gordon. Well, welcome to episode 15 <laughs> of Binge <laughs> or Bum. Gillian is some interesting. Oh, uh, no, I just was, I was just feeling quite annoyed. As you all know, you have to get all these subscriptions to all these different platforms in order to watch global television or, or movies too. And that actually I subscribed to one channel and, and it had ads on it. So I took the cheaper choice mm-hmm. and I got ads. I thought, well, why am I just not watching television? Oh, what because television was free. So what happened? We just all bought into this whole streaming thing. Not really what we all signed on for, I think. Yeah. And we're going to be talking about Life on Mars, uh, an older British series, which is on Amazon and BritBox. Our Day Madrid, a new series, which is on Amazon and Apple about Ava Gardner in Madrid. And Cleo, or Cleo, which is a German series about a, a wonderful, crazy spy. So that's on Netflix. Who's in the best-selling show? Is there life on Mars? Next up. Life on Mars. Life on Mars, which first aired in 2006 and has had sequels and a USA remake and maybe back for a third season. The series is, depending on how you look at it, a time-traveling fantasy or a police procedural thriller and quite possibly both. It is the early 2000s. DCI Sam Tyler of the Greater Manchester Police is engaged and on the rise when he is hit by a car in a you know pursuit of a bad guy and fights for his life in a coma lying in a hospital bed, but in some alternate reality. He's also been vaulted back to 1973, now finds himself in an old-fashioned world, which means not only is there rampant sexism, foisted mainly on a clever young female copper, Annie, but also there's a very lenient approach, which often means much brutality meted out by Tyler's new colleagues, clueless band of macho detectives led by the brutish but effective Gene Hunt. And while the police drama continues in the 70s, there are reminders that makes Tyler's coma seem all too real. There are innocent radio broadcasts that he hears that turn into his surgical team's assessment of his medical state. Is he really in a coma and this 1973 reality is a dream? Is he crazy? But his growing love for fellow copper Annie keeps challenging him as to how badly he wants to return to his future reality. If indeed he can. Gene, as he calls himself, Gene, Genie, <laughs> uh, the Gene Hunt character played brilliantly by Philip Glenister, um, who I adore, has a certain charm. Mm-hmm. And in spite of his kind of cheeky, misogynistic, slightly corrupt approach to slightly detection, yeah, yeah, uh, is absolutely delightful. And I think, you know, actually, I think that the John Sim character, Sam Tyler, actually really likes him. And that's another reason to stick around. What kept me going was the characters, especially Sam and Annie. I found the stereotypical of Gene Hunt that you love 
and the feckless band of coppers underneath him to be a little questionable. They're not necessarily bad guys, but they're men of a certain time period that make them real for who they should have been in that time period. This is not a straightforward cop series, so don't be misled. Uh, This is a surreal television series that goes back and forth in time. And you, and, and as, as, as Ellen said, you're constantly asking this question, what's real? What isn't what, you know, is he in a coma? Is he dead? You know, I also thought it was an excellent uh, diagnosis of disassociative identity disorder. Like he has this alternate personality who lives in 1973. I found that I was engaged by all of it. Ultimately, what do you think? The show is classic cop detection, but also this incredible surreal element where he hears voices where they come from i love that stuff you know so it's it's really intriguing isn't it you really are never quite sure of what is reality and what is it which i think is a really but also he also uses in in, in that context he uses his knowledge and expertise and forensic uh, uh, insight in 1973 which is everybody's going what you need to like yeah you know don't step on the you know they use elements from the 2000s as well as elements of Sam to interweave and make it a much more um, interesting fabric of a story. Very, very clever show. We know it's compelling because it's been translated into lots of different languages, Korean, Russian, Spanish. And then, of course, continues with Ashes to Ashes, Ashes another to Ashes. Bowie song. For me, I think this is really worth watching. And I would definitely say binge it. <laughs> And you? You know, I love it. I mean, I think it's one of when I moved to the UK, um, I kept on thinking, yeah, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to work in British television, a series <laughs> like great. Life on Mars. For me, it's a major, major binge. Coming up on Amazon and Apple, a comedy drama called Arte Madrid from Spain. This series is shot in black and white with the feel and style of a movie rather than a TV serial. It's Arde Madrid, which which is translated as Burn Madrid Burn, focuses on Spanish Franco politics with a comic eye. It's not an obvious ha-ha-ha comedy, but it does send up dictators, gangsters, and Franco loyalists. It's set in Madrid in 1961 and centers on Ana Marie, a virginal 30-something devout spinster, who is given the opportunity to spy on American actress Ava Gardner, played by Debbie Mazur. Now, she's in Spain to party and escape all the kind of scrutiny of being ex-Mrs. Sinatra. Franco's government suspects that Ava is hosting parties for commies, anarchists, and all those arty types. So they find this woman, Anna Marie, who's teaching uh, uh, teaching girls decorum, and she applies for the job as maid. She, and she reports, she's supposed to report on the comings and goings and catch... Ava and her commie associates. Reluctantly, Anna Marie must pose as the wife of Manolo, who is the butler's chauffeur. He's also the series director and co-creator uh, Paco Leon. Manolo is a real chancer. Not only is he interested in how much money he can scam out of the situation, he's also really interested in the side benefits with Anna Marie. Anna Marie finds herself 
challenged by much more than uncovering the potentially subversive politics of her new boss. Her whole life and everything she thought she knew about herself is thrown into question. There's just one problem. Unless partying is a crime, Gardner doesn't really deliver much in terms of of whatever her espionage or commie connections might be. And Anna-Marie has to work really hard to come up with anything even vaguely serious. Truthfully, Gardner's guilt or innocence is inconsequential. Suspicion is what got Anne-Marie hired, and that's all she needs to stay employed. Anna-Marie's efforts should have made her the star of Arde Madrid, but somehow she ends up taking a backseat to Manolo and his failed scheme to make money selling whiskey. Anne-Marie's spying becomes a kind of afterthought. And what what we as an audience are witnessing is a growing relationship between Manolo and Anne-Marie as they take center stage. Debbie Mazur is vaguely appealing as the brazen gardener, though when it comes to history, Arde Madrid might be just a little too superficial. One thing that, that I did quite like was Ernest Hemingway's death as one is an exception because it she's devastated by because they were very, very close. I would have liked a lot more fact. I mean, in terms of Ava Gardner, mm-hmm. um, she is a fascinating woman. She was the most gorgeous thing that ever lived. And this story of her is, is sidelined by the domestic kind of staff Comedia dell'arte storylines. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. You know, and apparently it, it is true that Gardner lived in the apartment above the former president of Argentina, Perón, who was living beneath her with his wife. And they kind of offer a kind of fun sitcom neighbors yelling and screaming and calling the police and saying she's you know, having too many parties. And the police turn up and go, oh, my God, it's Ava Gardner. And so they don't do anything mm-hmm. about it. I love the conceit of it, but the filmmaker's lack of sophistication and kind of plodding storytelling left me ultimately on the fence. I think you're being very generous, uh, you know, but obviously <laughs> it worked It worked for you. I felt that the Ava Gardner character was uh, abysmal, or not abysmal, just it was dismally portrayed. I do not, you know, not her fault. I don't like Debbie Mazur as an actress. However, I thought what they gave her as a character, what the writers gave her, was really hard to work with. She doesn't really have any depths. As you said, the only time that you see a person there is when Ernest Hemingway dies. Otherwise, she's just sort of this, you know, whirling dervish of temperament and, you know, peak at whatever's going on. Yeah, and darling, darling this, darling, darling that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's everybody's stereotypical wild, crazy actress. I mean, it was like something out of, you know, like out of La Dolce Vita. So I found that she was not particularly good. So I didn't love watching her. I did not like the uh, direction of the actress playing Anna Maria. Maybe she had another expression besides furrowed brow, but I didn't really see it. So she played Frida Kahlo though. She's got that uni brow. And Frida Kahlo was somebody who did look perpetually with a furrowed brow on on the world. So I think she'd be perfect. I did not believe this this was a person. She was a bunch of of characteristics, which is probably maybe one of the reasons that you uh, indicated you were more interested in the Manolo character because he was a person. This was a guy that I could understand and was interested in watching and to say nothing of the fact that he had more than one expression. Here's the guy who co-wrote it, co-created it, and directed it and is starring in it. And he he basically turns it into his show. 
even the parties, it was something out of a bad, you know, 60s movie, you know, the crazy people with the funny hats and, you know, and the, you know, the fat guy with the two starlets. And I I just had seen it all before. I did love the cinematography. I love that you know, they shot it in black Look of and white. It. Yeah, for sure. I found it was a sort of a one trick pony. Uh, I yeah. wasn't that interested in Ava Gardner's household, nor in Ava Gardner, and certainly not in Anna Maria, the main character. So what was I left with? I was left with Manolo being a schemer and sort of that kind of didn't, you know, make I kind of love the whole gypsy thing, though. He goes against the gypsies and then he tries to get back in with them by stealing uh, some jewels for them and we're getting to see a part of a life that we don't necessarily And know. also, the only interesting people in that party were the gypsies that wander in, I think, with the goat. Now, that was interesting. If I'm going to give this a rating, I'm going to have to give this a huge bomb. And I am on the fence about it. Uh, there were some aspects of it that I quite enjoyed, the look, the style, the feel of it. I'm taking our new category, which is I'm sitting on the fence. <laughs> what the... Coming up, Cleo, a German political thriller from Netflix. Cleo is a, or Cleo, is a German action thriller television series. It follows the supercharged revenge journey of a cocky former East German Stasi assassin, Cleo Straub. So if you liked Killing Eve or films like Run, Lola, Run, and Kill Bill, you'll enjoy this stylishly produced series set in 1987. Our central character, Cleo, after successfully assassinating a double agent in a West Berlin club, is falsely imprisoned by the agency or the Stasi. Um, when she's re released, it's the Berlin Wall has fallen, and she plans her revenge on the conspirators who framed her. Meanwhile, Sven Petzold, a slightly foolish and pretty hopeless fraud cop who's accidentally witnessed this murder in the nightclub. And also add that he's from West Berlin. Yeah, well, he's he's from West Berlin. Exactly. And he and he he figures out some connection between the murder and Cleo. He then decides to pursue her in hopes of, you know, raising his status in the police force. And ultimately, they join forces and go on this pretty insane, kind of fun international revenge tour. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a great way to put it. <laughs> I kind of love stories about vengeful women. You know, Medea has been successful for a very long time. <laughs> There's a special frisson about badass women who get revenge. And I found the series oddly fascinating and compelling. It's really highly stylized. It's a rollicking Cold War, you know, because you, you go back and forth in time between before the wall and after the wall. She gets into a lot of costumes. and, uh, and Oh, the costumes are great. And the oh wigs are fantastic. And there's also insane wallpaper adorning <laughs> every all the walls of every house that we go into. So that's It's worth it just for that. The first half of the season kind of follows a pretty conventional format. You know, she's got her targets. She goes out. And then we're introduced to the mysterious red suitcase, a key MacGuffin, which holds a secret to something that could change the destiny of Germany and maybe even the world, right? That did not work for me. And I quite <laughs> frankly, even, even at the end, I didn't quite understand what it was. I had to Google it and figure it out. Thank God I mean, for Google. Interesting, though, I thought the second half of the season really kind of switches things up. 
and this unlikely alliance with the fraud squad officers, Ven, starts to work really, really well. We are also kind of introduced to kind of political upheaval of the time. So I really thought that was a kind of refreshing backdrop for this cat mouse story. And they were really smart, to introduce, as you said, to introduce Sven, because just when she starts to get a little tired, or, or the plot device of her, not device, but the plot of her murdering this one, murdering that one, seeking revenge and killing this guy, that starts to tire around, you know, episode three. And then they bring in Sven. And all of a sudden, as you said, it's, it gets a jolt. At first, he kind of annoyed me. I mean, he really annoyed me, actually. Oh, really? Um, but but he he came to life. He came to life. Yeah, no, I, I liked him. I'm, um, but he turns out to have his good points. I also thought that there were some wonderful supporting characters like Hilo, who's a techno-loving <laughs> Western boy, you know, with some money who squats in her apartment. Oh, yeah, well, it was here. It was just awesome. <laughs> What are you doing here? He then becomes Cleo's really good friend and companion. I did not get him at all. I think you're right. He's very interesting. And then something I don't want to give it away happens to him at the end, which is totally from another series. It has nothing to do with the tone or the genre of this series. But I think, you know, I applaud them for, you know, throwing something at you and saying, believe it or not, that's what we wanted to do. There are things that are kind of annoying, like the classic disclaimer at the beginning. This is a true story. None of this really happened. Huh? Mm. The mysterious suitcase. And then the convenience of suddenly, you know, remember, I don't know if you remember this, the, a file with a photograph falls out accidentally on the floor, which was, you know, perfect timing because she needed it right then. You know, it isn't subtle, is it? They do flashbacks of how uh, she was raised. And she was raised in this very, almost like a science experiment. So there's a tiny little, little touch of sci, not sci-fi, but it just fantasy. I think. I mean, I don't know. Maybe kids were quite surreal, like actually. Yeah, it's exactly surreal is a perfect word for it. Yeah. So I, I quite like that. Also, as you said, there the convenience of of certain plot points. You had to kind of you know hold your nose and go, oh, oh all right, yeah, yeah, exactly. But that whole kind of world of assassins and double agents and false friends and random wackos it was kind of exciting. And actually, sometimes it was witty. Yeah, and she and she's very clever in the way she kills. You know, so it, it borders on the silly. So it's almost like it takes the, the edge off of the fact that she's actually killing people. You know, well, so. but that's a kind of I think that's a modern thing. You know, it's yeah. very sort of killing Eve, isn't it? Or you know, isn't it fun to kill people and let's put on some wild, crazy music as we do right. it? This has become sort of a a genre. Well, I would say killing Eve for me was a delightful souffle. And Cleo is what? Like a dumpling? What it's a tasty dumpling. <laughs> what did right. you think? Ginger bomb. Boy. Yeah, you know something? I'm gonna say binge. I'm gonna say binge too. Uh, I'm, for the most part, I was pretty amused. We hope you have enjoyed all of the offerings we have brought up to you and that you will join us next time when we're going to be reviewing a French political thriller called Spin and Mariachis, which is from Mexico, and A Spy Among Friends, which is an incredible series that uh, is from Britain and just landed here a couple of months ago. And don't forget to look for us on Spotify, Google, or Apple, or wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Instagram. We love that. And check us out. You know, the website is a really good guide to the episodes. So that's at bingerbomb.com. And what else, Gillian? You know, let's talk about it. <laughs>